morning, Southfield. It's good to have you today here in this place where we can worship our God together and hear from his voice this morning. Would you please stand as we sing praises to him? Run into your arms, run into your arms, 
God, it is an incredible privilege to be in your presence today. We know that you're with us all the time and we're with you all the time, but, but we get to come into this place and gather, be with other people who love you, and be very aware of your presence. And, and I pray that throughout everything we do this morning, that that would be the case. We would not lose sight of you. Whatever has distracted us this week, our minds and our hearts would be, they'd be pulled back and we'd really have our focus and our attention on you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you have a seat for a moment? We're going to start things a little differently today. Um, obviously, it's been just kind of a strange week. And I don't know about you, but right now I feel like I've got an electrical current running inside of me. I've just got this buzz going on from, from all the stuff of the week. And not all of it's been bad. You know, I'm watching Facebook pictures last night and kids going off to prom. And I, I remember that feeling when my son and my daughter did that and going... Oh boy, my kids are growing up and I'm, and I'm watching these parents send their kids off and, and they have that knowledge and that feeling going on. But, but obviously the, the week was full of a lot of stuff. I mean, everything from just the absolute craziness going on in Boston to, to letters being sent to, to officials and, and you're wondering what in the world is going on. And then God said, let it rain. And it rained. And every prayer we prayed for rain for the past two years was answered in two short days. Boom! There's the rain. I was out of town, actually, when the rain started. And I don't know if this is true at your house, but my house is a living organism. And my house knows when Dennis isn't there. Uh, Everybody else can leave. It doesn't matter. When Dennis leaves... Little things start to happen. And so I'm gone, and the whole time I'm thinking, some pump, please don't. Don't fail me now. Don't fail me now. I don't need a flooded office. And yet some of you were in that spot. Some of you had water running through the ceiling, and poor Lorraine and and Jeff had to evacuate their house, and the Frankovichs had to get out of their place. And it was just one of those weeks. And, And so I thought it would be a good idea as we got going this morning to to um, give us a chance to be quiet, to give us a chance to, to come in here. And I, I think that's a big piece of why we do this. We, we come to a place that we're reminded that, yeah, you know, there can be crazy and nutty in the world around us, and there can be crazy even in our immediate circumstances. But God is always there. He's always in control. He never loses sight of us. And he wants us to keep our eyes on him. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're, going to take, uh, we're actually going to start this morning with communion. Having that time to be able to be quiet and reflect on the, on the real presence of Jesus with us. You know, as I was thinking about um, the tragedies of the week, I, I noticed once again, and it's just kind of a, a common pattern that we have as humans. We, we like to light candles when things are going wrong. You know, somebody dies, there's a tragedy, and before you know it, a makeshift memorial is in place, and, and the candles, the candles are starting to be lit. And I, I don't know why other people light candles. I know why I do. One is to be reminded that Jesus is the light of the world. That in, in the midst of the, the worst possible darkness, a little boy being killed by an idiot, in the, in the midst of the worst possible darkness, Jesus continues to be the light of the world. He never stops. But the other thing, when I, when I see people going to a memorial like that and putting a candle down, to me it's almost like saying, I'm leaving this here. I'm, leaving, I'm, I'm taking this burden I feel right now, and, I, and I'm leaving it right here. And, and I don't plan on taking it back with me. I'm leaving it here. 
And, and I hope that that's what you'll be able to do in the next couple of moments. That as we listen to a song that talks about the tremendous trust that we can have in Jesus in the middle of life's greatest pain, we can leave it here. Whatever, whatever we're feeling this morning, we can walk away from today saying, God, I'm leaving this pain, this sorrow, this confusion, whatever it is, I'm leaving it here at your feet today. So let's pray once again. And then our servers will come. And as they do, a tray will come to you. Bread in the middle, cup on the sides. Take the bread and eat it right away as a, as a symbol of your personal relationship with Jesus. And then we'll hold the cup together and drink it together at the end of the song as a way of being reminded that, that we're a body as well and not just individuals standing before Jesus. Father, I thank you for the great sacrifice for our sin that came through Jesus, the light of the world that shines so beautifully in the darkness. And God, we need to be reminded of that today because this past week the darkness was really thick. It was, it was, we could feel it, God. And we need the light to break through the darkness. We need you, Jesus, today to break through the darkness and to remind us once again that we can trust you. And we do in your name. Just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and to know the saith the Lord. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing
so glad I learned to trust Him. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know He is with me. To trust him more. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus. So good to trust in Jesus. All the grace to trust in In drinking this cup this morning, we affirm the fact, no matter how dark the darkness may seem, we trust Jesus. Let's drink the cup together. Now, Father, I pray that this morning we would be able to lay that candle down in front of you, reminded that you're you're the light of the world, but then leaving the burden here, leaving the pain here, knowing that the foot of the cross is where all our problems are solved. Through you, Jesus, everything. We can trust you, and we do. Amen. And this week on on Monday after um, school and dinner and everything, I was sitting with my daughter Kennedy, and we were doing her devotion. And sometimes you don't have a lot of words for what's going on, but I'm so thankful that God has the right words. And we read Psalm 61.4. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Some days just feel out of control. I know that you feel safer when life is predictable, when everything goes as planned, but don't be afraid. Trust me. Come to me and let me shelter you under my wings. You are completely safe with me. Put aside your fears and worries, and remember, I can use crazy days to do wonderful things in your life. You may have a chance to do something for me that wouldn't have happened on an ordinary day. Would you please stand? We're going to sing this song that is a great reminder of who we serve. There's no one alive. 
God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other, our God is healer, awesome and power, our God, our God, into the darkness you shine.
let's sing it again. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God.
how he loves us so let's sing that again and oh how he loves us so Dear God, this song is so true, Father. And Lord, we need to believe it. So, Lord, forgive us for not believing it. Forgive us for not trusting in you and and trusting in the love that you have for us. And Lord, help us from this day forward to be convinced of the unconditional, incredible love that you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What a beautiful combination of songs and what a great reminder. God is huge. He's bigger than anything going on in our lives, anything in the world that could try to take us down. At the same time, he's close enough and intimate enough to love us right where we are. Special day today, March 21st, 2013, correct? Got the date right? So for the first time in her life, Clara Belshan came to church. Never forget it. Don't shh. She's sleeping. Keep it quiet. Down, down, down. Congratulations, guys. We're really excited for you and great, great for uh, what will be a lifetime, we, we hope and pray, of, of following and loving Jesus. So just a, a, fantastic, a fantastic day for them and a great day for us to be able to be in God's house. We're in kind of the second part of a sermon. So I hope to fill in enough blanks that if you weren't here last week, you won't be completely lost. And at the same time, as we're going along, you may find that listening to last week is helpful. So uh, you can always find podcasts on the website. Go ahead and uh, get that. Today we're going to be heading into 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And this chapter really brings us back to something that we studied uh, back in chapter 6. Paul is teaching the Corinthians basically how to how do you go about making wise decisions? The, the decisions that, that require some real wisdom. We, we face basically three kinds of decisions every day. Sometimes we have those moral decisions that it's, it's right and wrong, black and white. It's etched in stone. We know the Ten Commandments say it. We don't even really have a decision to make. You do the right thing or you, know, you don't do the wrong thing, but you're going to go ahead and obey. The second category we, we looked at last week, and this would be the area where um, we have a moral decision to make, and God hasn't given a direct command in his, in his word regarding that particular thing, in, in part because it's embedded in culture. 
So, you know, you look at our times. God hasn't said an awful lot about, you know, floppy hats or skinny jeans. I mean, I've looked. I don't see anything about skinny jeans in the Bible. And so you're looking for things in our own times, modern events. And what you have to do is maybe you won't find a particular word, but you have to look for a biblical principle, like the principle of modesty. How does modesty fit the kind of clothing that we wear today? So you have those decisions to make. Now, beyond that, there's a third category. They're not decisions of right and wrong or good and bad, but they're, they're decisions of wisdom, the good, better, best decisions. This is a wise choice. And, and that's what Paul was addressing in chapter 8, and, and he goes on to talk about it in chapters 9 and 10. Now, he gave us these standards for decision-making in chapter 6, two of them, and, and then we're building on them from here. So let's go back to that verse in chapter 6 that says, You, that is the Corinthians, he's quoting them. He says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though you say, I'm allowed to do anything, I, we must not become a slave to anything. So the first standard, you may be allowed to do something. It's permissible. It's not forbidden in the Bible. It's a permissible thing to do. But, but it's just not good for you. And, and probably the prime examples of this come in the area of health. There are some habits, some things that we might eat and whatever, that, that over the course of time, if we keep doing that, it's going to lead to poor health. Not directly forbidden in the Bible, but, but we've got to be aware of the way we live and that that can have an impact on our lives. The second standard, I may be allowed to do it, but I'm not supposed to become a slave to anything. Or in other words, if it's addictive, I should avoid it. If it's something that's going to cause me to be addicted, I should try to stay away. Now, I could give you a long list of substances that in and of themselves are not forbidden. But they're addictive. And we've got to be careful about that quality of them. What's the problem with addiction? Well, I mean, we could go through all kinds of common sense answers, but I want to give you the answer Paul gave. Paul said, we're not to be a slave to anything but Jesus. We are, Jesus is our king. He is our Lord. He is the one to whom we are committed. And anything else diverts our allegiance to him. So we've got to be careful about that. In Ephesians, Paul talked about not getting drunk. And and he gave a really simple reason. He says, um, liquor isn't supposed to control your life. The spirit is supposed to control your life. And so make sure that there's nothing in your life that would pull you away from the spirit's control at any moment, even for just a good time or a good night. So what? The spirit is supposed to control me all the time. Now, the third standard came last week, and he actually adds it to the mix in a verse in, in chapter 10. So I want, you to, I want you to see it there. And he actually kind of requotes part of chapter 6, so this sounds familiar. He says, you may say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And you say I'm, not, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. And then comes verse 24. Don't be concerned for your own good but for the good of others. Like I said, this verse looks very similar to the one in in chapter 6, but he ends with this part that we looked at last week. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. A Christ follower never makes decisions in isolation. We don't make decisions in a social vacuum. I don't get to do what is just best for me. I'm supposed to take the time to look at the body around me and ask, how is this decision affecting the church? And then beyond that, how is this decision affecting lost people around me? What, what impact does it have on everyone around me? Uh, we do not make decisions solely on personal impact. We're not selfish like that. We look beyond ourselves. True Christ followers 
Look at the impact their action is having on other peoples, Christians and non-Christians alike. In this way, um, the Christian culture and the Bible run clearly opposed to modern, modern American culture. Modern American culture says what? I have my rights. I have my, you're not going to tell me to do that. I have my rights. I mean, we hear it all the time. I have my rights. That is, that is true in society. But as a Christ follower, your primary citizenship is not to the United States. Your primary citizenship is to heaven. Your, Jesus is your king. He's the one in charge of your life. Uh, here, here's Christian thinking. Freedom is not the right to do what I want. It's the liberty to do what I ought It's not the right for me to do whatever I want. It's the liberty to do the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, that I ought to do instead of just what I want to do. So when making decisions, I don't just think about me. I think us. I think we. I think beyond myself. When it comes to making decisions, you have three standards. Is it good for me? Is it addictive? And is it best for those around me? And by the end of our time today, we'll have one final standard as well. Now, when you break into chapter 9, on the surface it may seem like Paul is just off on a new topic. He's gone in a new direction when you read it. You're kind of, where is he going here? But what you're going to find actually is that Paul is using chapter 9 to illustrate chapter 8. And he's using a very personal illustration. He's saying, I don't just tell you what to do, I do it too. I live it out too. So let's just kind of walk through chapter 9 fairly quickly. Verses 1 and 2 of this chapter start with four questions. Am I, not, am I not as free as anyone else? Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen the Lord with my own eyes? Is it because of, isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? Now, even if others may think I'm not an apostle, and there were some people that doubted it, I certainly am to do to you. You yourselves are proof that I am the Lord's apostle. Those four questions all assume the answer yes. Uh, Paul expects that we'll answer, of, of course you're free. Of course you're an apostle. He, he assumes a yes. And all of them are intended as a way of saying, Paul's saying, I'm a legitimate apostle, as legitimate as Peter, James, John, and the others. I am an apostle. Now, if Paul is a legitimate apostle, apostle then he, like the others, shares certain rights. There are things that he's allowed to do and benefits that are afforded to him because he's an apostle. Look at verses, uh, the, the first, verses 4 and 5. Don't we have the right to live in your homes and share your meals? Don't we have the right to bring a Christian wife with us, as the other apostles and our Lord's brothers do, and, and as Peter does? You see, when apostles traveled among the churches, they had the right to be supported by the churches. They, they, they could say, hey, I need your help, and the church has supported them. He goes on in verses 7 and 8 to say, what soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer can't go out and pick some of his own fruit? What, what shepherd isn't allowed to take some of the milk from the animals? Uh, he even goes on in the chapter to say that the Old Testament made clear provision for the priests and spiritual workers in the Old Testament. Uh, Go on to verses 11 and 12. He says, Since we have planted spiritual seeds among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have even the greater right 
to be supported. So Paul's making this very clear case. I have the right to be supported. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, I have the right to receive help and benefit from you. Now, interestingly, Paul is not making this case because he's looking for a raise. He's not making this case because he's had too much lasagna lately and he wants something else instead. He, this, that's not where he's going with this. Look at the second half of verse 12. I'm, I'm going to bring it on the screen right now. It says, but we have never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Let's keep reading this part of the passage. He says, Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple, and those who serve at the altar get their share of the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yet I have never used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this to suggest that I want to start now. That's not his purpose. In fact, I would rather die. Talk about extreme. I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet preaching the good news is not something you can boast about. I love when Paul does this. He kind of gets a little fun. I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I preached the good news. If I didn't preach the good news. If I were doing this of my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice, for God has given me this sacred trust. What then is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charge to anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. So what's Paul's point? Paul's saying, I practice what I preach. You read chapter 8. You read what I said, and I'm demonstrating that I do the same thing. For some reason, this apostle believes that accepting support from the church would actually hinder his ministry. And so he refuses to do so. Now, interestingly, some people read that as him saying, I'm not a legitimate apostle. I don't deserve to receive this. And he's saying, that's not the reason I don't ask. I don't ask because I want nothing, absolutely nothing to hinder my work among you and my work of of reaching people for Christ. Paul got it. His rights were not his prime value. He didn't go around demanding his rights because of who he was, because of his position. He said, I, my liberty gives me the privilege to do what I ought, not what I think I deserve. Look at, look at verse 19. He says, even though I am free, a free man with no master, I become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I'm with the Jews, I live like a Jew to bring Jews to Christ. When I'm with those who do not follow Jewish law, I I live under the law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring Christ to those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow Jewish law, I live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share its blessings. The last line is key. It is key. And in this case, whatever it takes in Paul's mind is that he knew he had the right to be paid. He knew he had the right to support. And he said, I will not receive it for the sake of a greater cause. Paul never held his personal rights higher than the soul of another person. 
Never, ever. In every case, he says, I live, I die for the purpose of bringing others to Christ and bringing people into closer relationship to Christ. He ends the chapter with a, with a, with a sports analogy. Sorry, I didn't click. He says, don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. Don't just, you know, fiddle around. Run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win the prize that will fade away. But we reach for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I do not just shadow box. I, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do whatever it should. Otherwise, I fear that ever pre- after preaching to others, I might myself be disqualified. Paul is basically saying it takes great focus and great discipline to live a life pleasing to God. I need that kind of focus and that kind of discipline. Purpose was a driving factor in Paul's life. And Purpose was accomplished not through claiming or celebrating his personal rights and liberties, but through the discipline of giving up his rights to serve others. So in those moments that he felt like he could demand something, it took discipline to say, I won't do that in order to bring someone else to Jesus. All of chapter 9 serves as an illustration of what he taught in chapter 8. He's not just telling others to give up their rights but saying, I'm an apostle, I'm special, I'm different than you. Not at all. He's saying, I'm giving up my rights. He practiced what he preached, and he wanted them to see his sermon in action. Now, in chapter 10, he returns once again to this illustration of of idol meat. Look Look at chapter 10, verse 25. It says, so you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace, without raising a question of conscience. And he even goes on to add this little piece, a quote from the Old Testament that says, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He returns to this dilemma in chapter 8. There was meat that was sacrificed to idols, and then if it was sacrificed to idols, because this stone god couldn't eat it, it was taken to the marketplace, and there it was sold for a profit. And there are two groups in the Corinthian church. And if you haven't gotten this by now, there are always two groups in the Corinthian church. I think they invented the middle aisle in the church. Because there, there's always a split, there's always a division, there are always two sides, it seems, on almost every issue. One group says, meat is meat, it's good, so what if it was offered to an idol? The, you know, I don't believe in the idol, I can go and have and eat the meat, that meat looks great, it's cheap, I'm buying some. There's this other group, another group. They look at it and they say, I can't eat that meat. That meat was offered in pagan practices to an idol. The proceeds go to, to help the spreading of false teaching. I refuse to eat it. Now remember, we're talking wisdom decisions. Nowhere in the Bible do we either see God condemning or commending eating idol meat. This is one of those areas that they had the freedom to make a decision, to choose what they were going to do. So, though those who felt they could eat meat ate it, even though it deeply troubled the other half of the church. Even though the other half was going, how in the world can you do that? They said, I have my rights to eat whatever I want, and no one, absolutely no one, is going to stop me. It's not a moral matter of black and white, right or wrong. He introduced this idea in chapter 8. He called it matters of conscience or questions of conscience. So these are areas that 
it may sound strange, but there may be something that is right for me and wrong for you, or wrong for you and right for me. Again, not the black and white stuff in the Bible. None of us get a free pass on adultery, murder, or any of the other commands. But in areas of conscience, because of where you are in your spiritual growth, there may be something early on that you can't do, you can't partake in, that as you mature in Christ, you gain a different perspective. That's what Paul is talking about. He illustrates how this works in the next few verses. These, these verses are written from the perspective of the person who, who wants to eat the idol meat. Here's what he says. If someone who isn't a believer asks you to his home for a dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever is offered to you without raising a question of conscience. So you may know this, this neighbor is, you know, he's the high priest in the, in the pagan temple of Apollo. And you know that the hamburger you're about to eat was sacrificed yesterday. You know it. But, but if you're invited, go ahead and eat. Now, in little parentheses here, suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. And by the way, it's not just a statement, but they're saying, and you know what that means? This meat was offered to an idol. Do you really think you should eat it? He says, don't eat it out of consideration of the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. For why should my freedom, this is interesting the way he says this, for why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? So so he's kind of saying, I get your point, I get what you're saying, but it, but it bothers someone else's conscience when you do this. Now, now, at first glance, you may look at this verse and say, Paul seems to be kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. It seems a little hypocritical. You're allowed to eat it until someone mentions it, and then you can't eat. And, oh, my word, what in the world am I supposed to do? He's not being hypocritical at all. Paul is saying that a mature Christ follower needs to be aware of who he's with when he makes decisions. He needs to be aware of where they are in their walk when he makes these decisions. And again, so there is no confusion. He's not talking about moral matters that are always right and always wrong. He's not saying there's some buddies at church that you can go sin with because, you know, we're all Christians. So, hey, let's go commit adultery and have a great night. Woo woo. No, not at all. But he is saying there are some actions that are not commended or prohibited by the Bible. They're matters of conscience and you need to be aware of who you're with. So what I want to do is bring the, the idol meat thing into the modern context. And as I do, I've got to admit to you that um, I've resisted this. I resist giving specific illustrations for a few reasons. One, because some of you will treat it like a checklist. You'll hear it and you'll go, okay, those are the three things he's talking about. Well, I don't do any of those good. I'm safe. Uh, no, that's not. There, there are a multitude of issues, a multitude of issues. And here's the thing you've got to understand. The Spirit's supposed to talk to you about this. The Spirit is supposed to be the one guiding your conscience. And so I really want this to be a matter between you and the Spirit. Having said that as well, I'm going to give you some personal illustrations. And you're going to hear these personal illustrations. You're going to say, okay, now we know what Dennis thinks is wrong, so we better be careful around him. Or if Dennis sees me doing this, now he thinks I'm a blazing sinner. Or maybe it's time to look for a new church where the pastor is not so judgmental. All these little, you know, demons are going to jump into your head. Just resist them. Be gone. Okay? Listen. Just listen. (laughs) Just listen. And and as you do, um, understand that these illustrations are given for the sake of helping you to see some of the areas that I've had to make decisions of conscience that apply to me, to me. Idle meat in the modern context, I believe, is related to um, 
to actions and items from a person's B.C. days, before Christ. There are things you did before Christ that I may not have done before Christ. And those things you did before Christ remind you of your old way of life immediately. You go there, you do that, you see someone else go there, you see someone else do that, and boom, your life is B.C. in a moment. You're, all of a sudden, you are transported back to that moment, that moment where you were bound in sin and couldn't get out. It may even be that in the process of seeing someone else do that or going back there yourself, you're tempted to go back to old habits. That's what the idol meat is all about. Idol meat was about the Corinthians' B.C. days. They used to worship idols, and now they don't. Well, we never had that problem, but we have other issues. We have other things that we did before Christ, and now we're living... Alive in Christ, and, and sometimes, especially early on in our walk, there's confusion. We can't disassociate a place or an action or a substance with our past life of sin. It's like it's ingrained in us, at least at the beginning of our lives. So, in the past, you may have been a huge bar hopper. I mean, you just, that, that, was, that was Friday night for you. Hit them. Boom, 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 boom. And as you went along, you got drunker and drunker. And it may even have involved illicit sexual activity. That's, that was life for you. And now you look at a bar and you go, I could, I could never go in there. But, but even more than that, if you saw Dennis walking out of there, you'd go, what in the world is he doing? And what you don't know is I love their chicken wrap. Best chicken wrap in town. And I drink water with ice and a lemon. But you see me walking out and you go, I didn't know he's a bar hopper. I didn't know he did what I do. You see, I've made a decision. I don't go there. I'm not telling you not to go there. I don't go there because you might see me. Now, is that like, oh my goodness, you're being a hypocrite? No, that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, be aware of how your decisions impact other people. I remember clearly when my parents first came to Christ. I was seven years old. And um, my parents, uh, their lives were controlled by alcohol. They were controlled by it. More than once they tell stories of driving home at night, waking up in bed the next day and asking each other who drove home. So, I mean... Of course, this is, you know, back in the day when it was okay to drive drunk. <laughs> anyway, they became Christians and they made three decisions. Just cold turkey. We're done drinking. It's it. We're done. Because it had a bind on them. They also got rid of all the stuff in the house that was related to drinking. My dad got some steins when he was in Germany in the service. Threw them away. Just got rid of them. Some of you are going, really? That's kind of dumb. This is what he had to do. In order to break loose. In order to break loose is what he had to do. And they, they not only wouldn't go to a bar, they wouldn't go to a place with a bar. Now, Fridays didn't exist in those days. And all. This is the old days when we had McDonald's and McDonald's. I mean, you know, back in the day. But nonetheless, they, they just said, we can't even do that. And I'll tell you what, if they'd have looked around the church and seen a deacon or a pastor walking out of one of those places, they'd have gone, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Now, here's the interesting thing. In our family, uh, we're, we're Polish. Topolsky's, Topolsky's Bar was one of the big bars in town. And a lot of our family events took place in that bar. And talk about it, a season of confusion where they'd want to go to a family event, but they're like, if I go back there, it reminds me of my... They went through a lot of personal conflict with this. 
It was really hard for them to be able to work their way through this. So, so you see how this, it caused them struggles in their conscience. The funny thing today, they wouldn't think twice about it. It's been, well, 1970. You do the math. I can't that fast. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since they came to Christ. It's not an issue for them anymore. And you say, well, that, doesn't that seem hypocritical? Not at all, because this is what we're talking about in matters of conscience. For you, it may be a sin. For me, it may not be a sin, based on what it's doing to your conscience. If the Spirit is saying no, you don't. But if you see me do it, that could cause you a real struggle. I'll give you some, some others for me. Um, uh, I resist saying this. I've prayed a lot. I'm going to say it anyway. I don't go to Hooters. I don't go to Hooters. I went to their website last night just to be reminded of why Hooters exists. It's not for what's on the menu. I don't go to Hooters. I hear they have great wings. I hear they have... I'm from Buffalo. We invented wings. I love to sample the wings of the world to say you people still don't have it right yet. I don't go to Hooters. Why don't I go to Hooters? Because as I'm walking out that door, one of you is going to drive by and say, just like all the rest, in an area that priests and pastors have not been able to stay morally straight, I'm not going to that place. Because I don't want you to wonder if I was staring at my plate or staring at my server. I don't go there. Now you're saying, all right, pastor said we can't go to Hooters. No, I can't go to Hooters. I can't go there. And that's a decision you have to make. But do you see how this works out? Do you see how this works? We've got to look not only at our lives, but we have to look at the lives around us and ask, how will this impact someone else, not just me? Because I love chicken wings. Look at this face. Look at this body. I love chicken wings. I'm not going there, ever. You'd have to drag my corpse, and even then I'd resist. I'm not going. Done. I could go on with other stuff, but I I hope this gives you an idea. You know, part of what I struggle with, with talking about idle meat and examples and in a short time, is that it's going to sound like that chapter is all just anti-booze. And that's not really the issue. But it seems like for most of us, that was the binding factor in our pre-BC life. That was the thing that pulled a lot of us to a place that we said, why did I make those decisions? Why did I do that stuff? And so for me, that's an area, even my wife and I have just, we've made the commitment. We don't drink, ever. I want water. And lots of iced tea. But beyond that, we, we don't. And it's not like, I don't look at you and say, oh, drunkard. I, that's not, I don't do that. But I don't want, I, I know there have been times, I was, at a, I was at a family party once. And everybody had a drink except me and one other person. My uncle, who has been an alcoholic all his life, who finally gave it up. And I said, I'll stand with you, man. I'll stand with you. Everybody else is doing this. They weren't all getting sloshed. It was a celebration. I'll stand with you in this moment. I know there have been times that I've been at a celebration and there's a, there's a person there that, who has a, a non-believing spouse. And that non-believing spouse is eyeballing me the whole time so that when I leave, they can go back in the house and say, your pastor's an idiot and here's why. And so I try my best to not be an idiot, which means sitting quiet just like this. But, <laughs> But I don't want that person later in the night to say, your pastor is drinking. What's the big deal you have about drinking? So I hope it's clear. I am not condemning. If you drink and you can do that with a clear conscience, great. If you get drunk, so what? 
Bible condemns it flatly. Absolutely. That's not, that's not an area of liberty. Bible says don't. But the Bible never said you can't drink. The Bible did say when you do, look around the room. Think about other people. I told you I was going to give you one more standard, which means I need to race through his verse here. Last one. Uh, there it is. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I mean, that just covers it all. Does this action bring attention to God? And is the attention it brings to God good attention? The thing I'm doing right now, do people say, so that's what God looks like, and they smile? Or do they say, so that's what God looks like? Don't want any thank you very much. Does my action bring glory to God? I'll tell you what, if you'll work through these four standards together, not pick and choose which one you want, work through these four standards together when it comes to wisdom decisions. Is it good for me? Is it addictive? How does it impact others? And does this glorify God? If you'll put those four together and make decisions, I'm promising you this, you'll get 100 on the test every time. Every time. You won't miss because you're following the patterns that God has given us for being able to make wise decisions in our lives. Is it good for me? Is it addictive? How does it impact others? Does this glorify God? Would you um, take the card out of your folder? On the back side, I've given you some, some next steps, things to think about. And, and really what we do with these, you know, it's not like admission of guilt time so I can sit in my basement and stare at what you've been doing or something. It, it's, it's my opportunity to help you to take a step to say this is where God needs to grow me and helps us to be able to pray with you as well. So the first one is simply this. I can clearly identify an, an idle meat example in my life. There's an area that I can see. I've been eating idle meat. The second one, I can see how my actions have been impacting someone with a weaker conscience. I get it now. I understand why this is an issue. The third, I'm with Paul. I'll never eat meat again if it'll help someone else to grow. I'm done. I'm, no more wings, whatever. It, I, I'm done if it'll help someone else to grow. And, you know, radical statement, but I love that he loved people that much to say it. And finally... Uh, I'm going to put these four standards into practice in my life. I'm going to start practicing these so that I start making better decisions. Before you're done with the card, two other things. In the I am interested in sign, uh, you can sign up for a garden plot if you want. Boy, talk about going to the absurd and mundane. And then something far better. uh, If you're one of the women in our church who wants to be involved in that Encourage event this coming weekend, check those off so we'll make sure you get contacted. Our servers are coming right now to receive the morning offering. And, uh, and you can place your cards in there. And as they do, I just I want to uh, go ahead and turn the spotlight for a minute on that event for, for our ladies on, on Friday and Saturday. You know, a lot of times uh, conferences, I know they're, they're tough for us to be able to get away to because between the expense of them and trying to find someone to take care of the kids because we husbands just don't always get it quite right. You wonder how we dress them when, they're, when you're gone, don't you? Uh, or if they eat. So getting away sometimes is kind of a struggle, and I love what this group has done. They've basically arranged a way by which you'll be able to participate from home Friday night. 
by way of video link on this conference. And then Saturday, you'll be meeting at Tristy Carlson's for a follow-up of, of what's been going on. I really want to encourage you, you know, no matter what age you are as a woman, go ahead and get involved in this. I love the fact that we get to, to mix and mingle and help each other in our walk with Christ. So if you're going to participate in that or if you just want more information about it, uh, make sure you let us know on that card or you tell Tristy today so that we get a, a good group out there to be able to be a part of that. It's been great to have you with us today. I hope that as you're walking away this morning, um, you, you do two things. One, you'll be able to leave your candle in the room. You'll be able to just leave it. All the junk of the week, you'll realize God is bigger. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Nothing in this world, flood water, madman, mad whatever, nothing is bigger than our God. But I hope that as you walk away as well, you'll start looking over your shoulder when you make decisions. Not because you're afraid of getting caught, but because you start thinking, this doesn't just impact me. This impacts my kids. impacts my family. It impacts my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus yet. It impacts my friend at church who's only known Jesus for four weeks and is trying to figure out what Christ follower looks like. And so they look at me. And I just, I hope and pray that we as a church will not be the kind of church that only always ever demands our rights, but instead will realize our liberty is an opportunity to do what we ought. And we'll do that all the time because we love Jesus more than chicken wings. There's the profound statement of the century. Let's stand and we'll pray. God, I thank you so much for the day and for your love for us. And I pray that as we go throughout this week, you will give us many opportunities to share that love with others. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.